0: Well, I heard something this week that I want to share with you. Um, Someone once said that preaching a sermon is like having a baby. Now, I'm pretty sure that whoever said this wasn't a a woman. Um, But at the process of preparing and preaching a sermon is very much like having a baby. And I don't know what the moms think. I know my wife wasn't too happy with this quote. But both are similar in that they are both painful um, both have the same process. A mom carries the baby in a room for a time. It grows over time. And one day she gives birth to it. Well, likewise, sermons have that same process. The Word of God is carried in the heart of the preacher. It grows over time. And on Sunday morning, he gives birth to the sermon. Um, well, let me carry that illustration a little further. And use that to shed light on my birthing process on the birthing process for my sermons. Now in my process of study, my first trimester, if you will, of my sermon prep, involves all the foundational work of studying the passage. I spend time praying and meditating on the passage. I observe the text. I read it over and over. I line diagram the text. I study the words identify the grammar, I look up keywords and its definitions, I consider the syntax of the passage, I look at the context, the background material, all of that, that's the foundational work and that's my first trimester. After that I enter the second trimester. In my second trimester I go on this heart-wrenching search, really, uh, soul rest- soul-wrenching s- search for the main theme of the verse, passage, or chapter that I'm studying. In that time I want to study, I want to discover the author's intended meaning, particularly the author's main point. Here at this point I want to answer, what is God saying here? What is the message He wants us to know? Especially, what is the main point of this text? Now after that arduous process, I enter the third trimester of my sermon prep where I fine-tune the message, the outline, I establish the introduction, I establish the conclusion, I look for and decide upon illustrations, and finally work on applications. And after those three trimesters, Sunday morning, I give birth to the sermon. Now I say this to all of you to say, to tell you that I had a horrible second trimester this week, right? What does that mean? I had the most difficult time ascertaining the main point of John chapter 5. I couldn't for the life of me nail down the central significance of this whole chapter. That's a scary thing for a pastor because if I can't get past the second trimester, then I can't get to the third, I can't give birth to the sermon. The main idea, the main theme of this passage eluded me this whole week. It literally haunted me day and night. Now first, I thought that the main idea, the main significance was the miracle miracle of this paralyzed man. We had spent our time studying John chapter 2, the miracle at Cana. We studied a few weeks ago the last passage of John chapter 4, the healing of the royal official son. So I thought, here is one more text about another miracle of Christ but then I as I studied this miracle I had to wonder to myself ask myself out of the countless miracles performed by Christ why did John choose to record this one in this short gospel I mean Christ performed miracle after miracle I don't know the countless miracles that he performed why this there is nothing particularly noteworthy about this miracle itself. You could make a convincing case that this paralytic who was healed, he's not even saved. He's not even a Christian. Further affirming my conclusion from the last passage of John chapter 4. I mean, there are, there are no signs of fruits of salvation. There are no tangible uh, um, traits in his life that point to it that his heart's been regenerated. After his healing, there's no praise, there is no thanksgiving, there is no recording of anything that he says that reflects a genuine desire to follow Christ. In fact, he's the one who reports to the enemies of Christ that it was Jesus who healed him, and that it was Jesus who ordered him to carry the mat. I mean, he knew that the leaders of of, of Israel wanted to persecute Christ. And he, instead of the blind man in John 9, John 9 says, I don't care if he's a sinner or not. I know that I was blind, but now I see. He testifies to Christ. This man points him out to the enemies of Christ. I mean, there is nothing really particularly special about this miracle. If the main theme is the miracle, it is very odd to say the least. Well then, I thought, maybe then this passage is not about the miracle, it's about the Sabbath. Sabbath. All right, Mark chapter 2 and 3, Matthew chapter 12, uh, our Lord's healing on the Sabbath was a main point of contention, a point of controversy throughout the Gospels. So here once again, is a passage dealing with that struggle between Christ and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of Israel. As I read uh, many commentators, it seemed that they believed this to be the main point of this chapter. And so, after spending a lot of time studying this chapter, after having read numerous articles and sermons on this chapter, after having listened to four sermons on the Sabbath, I came to the conclusion that the main point of this chapter is not about the Sabbath at all. Right? I finished my second trimester of this study By concluding that the main theme of this passage, this chapter, is not found in the account of the miracle, that it is not about the Sabbath, but that it is all about our Lord's declaration that He is equal to God, that He is God in flesh. The heart of this chapter is verses 17 through 30. Therein lies the true significance of this chapter. I believe this is why John chose this miracle and spent the whole chapter recording this miracle. This is why. Because this miracle and the controversy surrounding it prompted Christ to give this amazing testimony to declare his true identity. You don't find this in other gospels, but you find this awesome testimony that Christ made concerning himself. Therefore, the event, the miracle itself, the timing of it, the fact that it was a Sabbath, I believe were all merely incidental. They're just background material. right? You you guys ever tell a story, a long drawn-out story, and the two-thirds of it is all just background. It's just setting up the context for the main point. I believe that's what John is doing here. The miracle, the Sabbath, they're just information given for context. Right? They provide the background for the main message. So verses one through sixteen is all background. I mean, in my reading this week, many pastors, many well-meaning commentators spent much time exegeting and preaching from verses one through sixteen, talking about this man. The significance of him being an invalid for 38 years. The fact that there were five coverings in this uh, uh, Bethesda pool. As if that number five has, has any significance. One guy was saying, yeah, there are, the fifth commandment is the only one with a promise. And he points to the five colonnades. I think there were just five coverings there. And John, John's pointing it out. And the 38 years... It's simply because he was paralyzed for 30 years. There's no meaning to these, or a hidden meaning to these statements. They talk about his helplessness to get into the water. And see, so that's the picture of a sinner. Uh, and they talk about how he blames others for his illness. No one is here to help me. And they find significance of this. Um, I think more and more they, they go on about this. The, the rules, the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees had, Pharisees had established and how Christ came as the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, I think it is improper to dissect this chapter into three sermons. Sermon one is the healing. Sermon two is the Sabbath. Sermon three is our Lord revealing his true identity as if this narrative has three messages. No, it is vital, I think. I spend all this time to to help you guys understand interpreting the Gospels, interpreting narratives, stories, if you will. It is vital to understand that this, this narrative, this passage, has one central message. The healing and the Sabbath are, again, just historical facts, background material that surround this wonderful testimony of our Lord. Well, with that understanding, let's go to the text A brief background of chapter 5. Up till now, in our study, we haven't sensed any kind of resistance or opposition to Christ in the Gospel of John. When he turned water into wine, disciples believed. The head of the banquet was pleased. Jesus' mom was pleased. No real opposition. When he met with Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus was positive towards Christ. When he went to Samaria, the Samaritans believed in him. Now at Galilee, there was some tension because they wanted to see more miracles. Christ would not give in. Up to this point, really, there is no tangible evidence of any real opposition against the Lord. But it is this healing of this paralytic at the of Bethesda, which prompts the leaders of Israel to view Christ as a notorious criminal. They accuse him of blasphemy, and they consider him worthy of the death penalty. It is from this point on that those who oppose the Lord are determined to kill him. Now, what happened here? Why are the enemies of Christ so provoked in their anger against the Lord? Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Our Lord went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews it is an unnamed feast we're not sure exactly which feast it is the fact that our lord went up it is correct jerusalem is 2500 feet above sea level when we were in israel past summer during during the summer it was hot everywhere except jerusalem because jerusalem was so high up it was very windy very cool in the city of jerusalem so it is correct to say that though he was in galilee he went geographically south it is correct to say that he went up because he had to climb to go to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem and he goes to the Bethesda pool near the Sheep Gate. These gates that were rebuilt when the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in Nehemiah 3 is recorded in the book of Nehemiah. Near that gate was a pool called Bethesda. And in, near this pool there were gathered there a great number of disabled people, says verse 3. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. There was one invalid, verse five, who has been there for who has been an invalid for 38 years, and apparently there was some kind of myth tied to this pool that an angel would come down and stir this pool, and the first one in were to be healed. It was a myth, an old wives' tale. Some of these men believed it, and he was hoping for that to be healed. Well, our Lord, of all these um, um, gathered here, the great number of disabled people, our Lord selects this paralytic to be healed. Knowing not only how long he had suffered, but how he and the others respond to his healing, he asks the man if he wants to be healed. The man says, I want to be healed, but I can't because no one will help me down to the pool. Our Lord does not require the faith of the man, but he commands him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. The healed man, the man walks, and he takes the mat that he was lying upon, and he's healed immediately. Well, the Pharisees who were gathered around Jerusalem immediately recognized and see this man carrying his mat. And according to their oral tradition, their oral laws, it was unlawful for any man to to do work on Sabbath they considered carrying anything working on Sabbath they take him aside and they rebuke him for working on the Sabbath and his defense is the man who healed me he commanded me to carry the mat the Jews demand who is this man the man has no idea in verse 14 our Lord meets up with him later on and then look at verse 15 the response of this healed man. There is no repentance, there is no gratitude, there is no thanksgiving. Instead, he seeks out the authorities and he identifies Christ as a villain, as the one who commanded him to break the rules of the Sabbath. Well, from this point on, there's a transition that takes place. This paralytic or former paralytic uh, is set aside The focus is upon Christ and his attackers. Look at verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. They persecuted him because he was violating their laws. In verse 17, our Lord responds to this persecution. By declaring his authority to heal on the Sabbath based upon his true identity. He's saying, I have the authority to heal on the Sabbath because I am God. I am equal to God. This is unique to the Gospel of John. In Matthew 12 when his disciples are walking along the grain fields and they were picking out the heads of grain and rolling in their hands and eating the heads of the grain on the Sabbath, the Pharisees confronted him, your disciples, are working on the Sabbath. That is against the law. What did our Lord do? He defended himself by appealing to the Old Testament. Didn't David go into the temple of God and eat the showbread? And God was not angry with him. Is it wrong to eat on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath? He appealed furthermore to the Levites. Aren't the Levites working and God is not angry with them? Are they transgressing the law of God? And then thirdly he appealed to human compassion. What about you if you have a sheep that is caught in a hole on, a, on, the, on the Sabbath will you not lift him out? Out of human decency, out of human sympathy. In the synoptic gospels he defended himself by appealing to the Old Testament, example the levites or the human compassion. But surprisingly in John chapter 5 he doesn't make such defenses. In John chapter 5, he defended himself of healing on the Sabbath in a completely new way, a completely unique way. And what is that way? By revealing his identity as the Son of God, as God's only Son. J.C. Ryle says in this passage, quote, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his messiahship are found uniquely in this discourse. Ryle adds, To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. Phillips translates this passage and titles it, Jesus Makes His Tremendous Claim, end quote. Barclay says, This testimony by Christ is most extraordinary he must have known that to speak like this was to court death. It is his claim to be king and he knew full well that the man who listened to words like this had only two alternatives. The listener must either submit to him, accept Jesus as the Son of God, or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. There is hardly any passage where Jesus appeals for men's love and defies men's hatred as he does here." It's a remarkable claim. Our Lord responds to the persecution concerning his healing on the Sabbath and he defends himself by revealing his identity. What does he say? Look at verse 18. He says, My father is always at work until now. Therefore I too am working. He claims that he is God by calling God my father, not our father. No patriarch of Israel never called God my father. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Daniel, all the prophets. No one had the audacity to to claim that unique relationship with God. They always said our father. But here he says, the Jews, my father. It, it would be like this, something like this. You, know, you have your siblings. Maybe you have three or four sisters or brothers. And you're gathered around and talking about your parents. And one of the siblings says, well, my dad told me this. He'd be like, what do you mean your dad? <laughs> right? That's a, you've misspoken. He's our dad, not your dad. And he said, no, my dad. And are you claiming some special relationship with our dad? Well, that is a similar thing happening here. The Israelites saw God as their Father and when Jesus said, My Father, they understood He was claiming a unique relationship with God and claiming to be equal with God. And by saying, My Father is always at His work and therefore I am working, by that statement, He is affirming His absolute equality with the Father. I mean, it is nothing short of blasphemy if anyone else said this no matter how exalted your rank, no matter how great his religion, to speak of himself with God the Father in this way is clear-cut blasphemy. But not for Christ, because he's speaking the truth. When he speaks of God as my father and I, there is no misunderstanding of his claim. He says, my father is working until now in the Greek. God never sees to story. That is why I'm working on the Sabbath. A little bit of the background on the Sabbath. When did, when did the Sabbath begin? Right? It began in creation, right? In Genesis 1 and 2. God created for six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Now he rested not because he was tired, right? Not because he was exhausted and worn out from creation. No, he rested as an example for us, as a pattern for us. To set that seven-day, seven-day cycle. And that rest. In God's definition, was not just a merely resting from work, but he called the people of Israel to rest from work, to work, right? And what does that work? To worship God. It wasn't just, you know, veg on the sofa, relax by the couch or in the backyard. No, God called them to rest so they might work of worship unto God. But God rested only that seventh day. All the subsequent seventh day, seven days, all the subsequent Sabbaths, God's always working, right? Do you understand that? That first seventh day, He rested as an example for us. but every seventh day after that, He is always working. He's continuously working right. Every, sad, every Sabbath, God is never at rest. The sun rises and sets, the tides ebb and flow, the rain falls, the wind blows, the grass grows, people are born, people are saved, and people die. All the work of God. God never rests. So by the Lord saying, my father is always working, therefore I work, is a direct testimony that he himself is one with God. He's placing himself on the same level with the Father. He's saying, yeah, you guys, are commanded on the Sabbath to rest, but it doesn't apply to me. If It doesn't apply to my Father, and it doesn't apply to me. Why? Because we are one and the same. We are equal. We are united in nature and in essence because we are one. <clears throat> now, for the... Now for the original listeners of this statement, there was no mistaking the force of Christ's declaration. His persecutors, the religious leaders of Israel, were quick to recognize that Jesus had made himself equal to God with that statement. And you know what? They were right. Look at verse 18 actually. Previous was verse 17. Verse 18, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father calling God his own father making himself equal with God this was a reason and hatred of the Jewish leaders not only was he breaking the Sabbath he was committing in their eyes a greater sin a far greater sin the sin of blasphemy claiming to be equal with God our Lord's claim to absolute equality with God the Father fanned the hatred of the Jews. Look again in verse 18, it doesn't say from this point on they try to kill him. No, it says from this point on they tried harder to kill him. It's an intensification of the degree of their commitment to murder Christ. They hated him, they hated him all the more. They were set. we must destroy this man. Instead of being filled with praise, they were full of hatred. Instead of worshiping the, worshiping the sent one of God, they persecuted him. Instead of coming to him that they might have life, they hated him. They sought to put him to death. And this happens again and again in the Gospel of John. It seems that every time he declares his deity, his true identity, the leaders of Israel try to murder him. A similar scene is found in the close of John chapter 8. Immediately after the Lord says, before Abraham I am, they take up stones to cast at him. In the 10th chapter, when he says, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30, the Jews' immediate response is to take up stones, again, to stone him. They considered our Lord a blasphemer and attempted numerous times to kill him. Uh, His persecutors, the religious leaders of Israel, were quick to recognize that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God and they were right. They were right. That's what he was claiming. No other inference could be drawn from these words. Our Lord's subsequent statements affirm that their conclusion is correct. Instead of denying this claim He doesn't say, you know what, You're, you're twisting my words. He didn't say, Oh, you Pharisees, you're taking my words out of context, you're misunderstanding misunderstanding me. Not at all. His response is by affirming this claim, by giving four proofs that verify his equality with the Father. Four proofs. And note again, I'm being more and more convinced with my conclusion with the last passage of John chapter 4. How does he defend himself? How does he prove his claim that he is God? he does not perform any miracles he could have he does not walk on water he does not raise dead he does not give sight to the blind he gives verbal claims proving that he is equal with god well four proofs in verse 19 he gives his perfect unity with the father i'll go through this uh, through the sermon if you missed it we'll get to it again the first one is his perfect unity with the Father. Second is his power to quicken, his power to give life and raise up the dead. Third is his control over the whole judicial process. And then finally, his authority to save men from death to life. Four proofs. Let's start with the first one. first one is found in verse 19. His perfect unity with the Father. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. I read from NIV. The NIV omits one key word. NASV has it correctly. It says, Jesus therefore answered. That word therefore tells us it is connected with the previous verse. Our Lord says, verse 19, because of verse 18. Because they were accusing him of blasphemy, making himself equal to God. He says, verse 19, therefore, he says, the son can do nothing of himself. Now, some people think that that statement, stay with me, guys. I mean, when we're dealing with Christology, the incomprehensible paradox of the hypostatic union of Christ that he is fully God and fully man you know it's not easy I know it's difficult I'm I struggle to find words describe this mystery of Christ so when people when people read this they think that's pointing to his limitation the son can do nothing of himself it's pointing to his limitation as a man uh, do these words signify that point to his limitation point to an imperfection in his character, in his essence? No, I believe, in fact, it points to the opposite. That statement in verse 19 points to his perfection. Hold on to verse 19. We have a parallel statement in verse 30. Go down to verse 30 with me. Christ says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. The Son can do nothing of himself. That parallels, verse 19, does it not? And these two verses parallel. And in the closing words of verse 30, we find the Lord explaining His meaning. What He means by this, by giving us the statement, Because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So I am not seeking my own will, I am seeking the will of God. I don't do anything of myself. He's saying, I don't act independently of God, my will is exactly conformed. My will is perfectly united with the will of the Father. Only God can say that. Man could never say that. Man are born in sin Corrupt by nature, we are alienated from God, our wills are against the will of God. It's set against the will of God. Even angels could not say that because they had exercised, some had exercised their will independent of God and thus rebelled against Him. Isaiah chapter 14. But only God Himself could say that His will is perfectly united with the will of the Father. All right. Only the Son of God could say that. Only Jesus Christ could ever say that. Our Lord never acted independently of the Father. This is amazing. Everything that He did for 33 years, every word He spoke, every deed, every act was exactly consistent with the will of God the Father. He was always in perfect submission to the Father's will. God never had to break His will. His will never had to be broken. From start to finish, He was in most manifest agreement with the one who sent me. His will and His deed equally were in complete unity of the Father. Not only that, verse 19, go back to verse 19. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The most striking word in that sentence to me is whatever. Right? Whatever. Whatever. Whatever the Father does, whatever the Father is doing, I am doing as well. Only God can say that. This is proof positive that he is speaking of his essential character as one who is absolutely equal with God. The first proof. Let me read to you what Dr. John Brown says of this verse. Quote, All is of the Father. All is by the Son. Did the Father create the universe? So did the Son. Does the Father uphold the universe? So does the Son. Does the Father govern the universe? So does the Son. Is the Father the Savior of the world? So is the Son. Surely the Jews did not err when they concluded that our Lord made himself equal with God. Surely he who is so intimately connected with God that he does what God does. He does what God does, does all in the same manner in which God does it. Surely such a person cannot but be equal with God, end quote. That is the first proof uh, to his claim that he is equal with God. Go with me then to verse 20. The Lord says, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. The argument proceeds in this verse. In this way, Jesus says, The Father has no secrets from his beloved Son. The Father has shown me all things. Why? Because the Father uniquely loves him. Let me maybe simplify this. Um, If a stranger were to come to your house, you you might allow him in the front door, maybe in the living room, but not into the parts of your house that are are intimate to you, that are close to you. You wouldn't open your family album, you wouldn't open your financial statements to a perfect stranger. There would be definitely a great divide between what is closest to your heart and what you expose to the stranger. But let's say your son, your daughter, your husband or wife comes to your house will be no secrets. Because you love him or her, you will tell that person everything, reveal everything. Well, that is what Christ is saying. There is an intimate relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And Jesus says, God has shown me all these things because of His love for me. And that He will show me and show you even greater things. And what are these greater things? Verse 21, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, Even so, just like that, the Son will give life to whom He is pleased to give it. That is the greater things that will be shown to man. And this is the second proof of His claim that He is equal with God. This is the second proof His sovereign right to give life and raise the dead. His sovereign right to give life and raise the dead. This verse presents to us the second proof of Christ's deity. Here He affirms. The sovereignty, the absolute authority that only God has to pick and choose whom He will to be saved and to raise the dead. Here He lays claim to to divine sovereignty Himself. And I believe the healing of the paralytic, the healing of the invalid man was an object lesson. Here He demonstrated His sovereignty. There are all these sick people. There are all these disabled. None came to Him because they did not recognize Him. No one came to Him seeking to be healed. He chose one man out, out of the masses and Christ chose to heal him. He did not heal him because he deserved it or because he was asked or even because he had faith. It was purely a sovereign will. It pleased him. That was his desire. That was the will of him. And he chose one man and healed him. He singled out just one and made him whole and this is also true in the spiritual realm he does not save everyone only those whom Jesus wills completely sovereign he does not give life to only those who are worthy because none are worthy he does not impart life to those who are seeking it for no one seeks after God The son grants life to only those whom he will, and he says so, and that's the matter. That's the divine prerogative, and that's the second proof that he is God. God has given him sovereign right to give life and raise the dead. Let's go to the third proof. The third proof is in verse 22. His authority over the whole judicial process. His authority over the whole judicial process. Verse 22. Christ says, "Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son." All right. the Father judges no one. That's that's especially noteworthy. You would think that Father is the one who would naturally be the one who judges man, because men have transgressed against His laws, against His will. God, the Father, is the one who has been wronged. But instead of the father being the judge, the Lord says, he has entrusted all judgment to himself. Go down to verse 27, parallel statement. And is, he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Because he is a perfect mediator, he is the son of God and son of man that stands between God and man. God has entrusted to him, assigned him the authority to judge the role that was once play, pl- once fulfilled by God the Father has been given to the Son exclusively. So some, in the Lord's hands are, are salvation and judgment. I mean, he holds the keys. Whomever He wills, He has a divine sovereignty, the divine prerogative to save, and then He has the power to judge those who rebel against Him. Now, in verse 23 verse 22 and 23, we are given the reason why God the Father entrusts the Son with this judicial process. The reason for this is that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. All right. So that all men will honor Jesus Christ. Just as they honor God the Father so that they would honor Jesus Christ. To honor means to esteem, to reverence to praise to do homage we honor one when we ascribe to him when we give to him our hearts our words our actions of praise and obedience God says he's given him this authority to save and to judge because he desires that his son be honored along with him look at that verse again just as they honor the father that's a key phrase just like As just as they honor God, they must honor the Son. Same extent, same manner. I do believe the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Muslims, uh, Orthodox Jews need to understand this. That if they're not honoring Christ, they're not honoring God the Father. There's a big debate. Are we all worshiping the same God? But it is clear from this statement, by Christ himself, you are not. If you dishonor Christ by lowering his, his nature as anything less than fully God, you've dishonored him, and you're dishonoring God the Father. These cults and false teachers and false religions need to understand this. That they will come at the end of their lives, and they'll be shocked... Because what they deemed as worship to God was anything but worship of Him. Well, thus far we looked, looked at three proofs. Our Lord's perfect unity of the Father. His will is perfectly united with God the Father. Verse 19 and verse 30. The second proof was His sovereign right to give life and raise dead. Verse 20, 21 parallels again verses 28 and 29. Third proof was his authority over the whole judicial process, verses 22 and 27. And then finally, the fourth proof his exclusive authority to save men from death to life. His exclusive authority to save men from death to life, verses 24, 25, and verse 26. Now, Acts 4 12. There is no other name under heaven which men might be saved. Our Lord has the exclusive word authority to save anyone. Salvation is found only in Him. Why? Because He's God. Because He is completely God, equal with God the Father. Verse 24. A, a, a very special verse. A verse that maybe you know you might not have been familiar with this chapter. But I would, I would guess that most of you, if not all of you, was, were familiar with this verse. Such a special verse for us. Because it holds the promise for eternal life. I tell you the truth. And the authority that he holds to himself is not an, a prophet, thus saith the Lord. He says, I tell you the truth. This is what I am saying. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Again, look at that linkage that Christ gives to His words and faith in God. It's both ends. His words are equal to God's words. Believing in God is equal to believing in Him. He says, whoever hears my words and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. Not just hearing, but believing, and he points to a present possession. Anyone, at this point, believes in God through the words of Christ. Presently is a possessor of eternal life. Not only is it a present possession, that person's future is set. He or she shall not come into condemnation. The future is guaranteed. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Because instantly, positionally before God, anyone who hears, God's, who hears Christ's words and believes Him who sent Him has passed from death to life. Instant transference of position before God. Position of death to one of life. The man immediately passes from the state of death into the state of life. When a man believes he's no longer content, condemned to death and judgment, he is declared righteous and given eternal life. Well, undoubtedly, this angered the Jewish leaders all the more, and you'll we'll study this next week. I mean, their anger was at a boiling point. Talk about trying harder to kill him, their minds were made up. Oh, well, what about you this morning? what is your response to the claims of Christ and the proofs that he has given? He furnishes no miracles, no external tangible verifications that his words are true. He just speaks of himself and says that he is God. Jesus made this astounding claim that all authority belonged to him. All men must come to terms with this earth-shattering claim of Christ. If today uh, you're not a Christian, if today condemnation, judgment still hangs on your shoulders, Christ says, "He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life." You must do both. You've heard the word of God, but if you don't believe, it'll be of no profit to you. Listen to Hebrews 4, two. It talks about two categories of people who are all in the church. They all heard the gospel. One group, nothing happened. They continued in their sinfulness. They lived in rebellion. Another group, their lives were changed, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4.2, it explains what happened for we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. It was of no value. No profit. Why? Because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Hebrews 4, two. It is not just hearing of the words that brings eternal life. It is hearing and believing in the One who has sent the one who has spoken these words. Only to those who believe God grants eternal life. Secondly, um, maybe it should be an equipping time for all of you to, in our opportunities to talk to our friends, I guess, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, uh, Orthodox Jews. They might be sincere in their worship Um, intense in their worship of God or honoring of God. But these verses clearly state that if they're not honoring the Son by a right view of Him, they are not honoring the Father. And then finally, a call to all of us to honor God, to honor Christ. When we worship Christ, we're not worshiping someone other than God. When we're worshiping Christ, we're worshiping God. God Himself absolutely equal with God the Father. Let's pray. Father, my heart is definitely stirred by the noble themes of scripture studied this morning. The depths of these truths are too deep for us to even fathom, For us to really Understand rightly with our limited minds, God, um, such an earth-shattering, remarkable claim of Christ that He is God, that His will is perfectly united with God the Father, that when we see Christ, we are seeing God, when we're hearing Him, we're hearing the words of God, when we're seeing His compassion, we're seeing the compassion of God the Father and that he has the divine authority, the divine sovereignty to save and to judge and to grant eternal life. Lord, as as it is taught to us this morning, may He cause in us a heart to honor You, honor the Son, to kiss His feet, worship Him as He is worthy because He is God. May we call call the world submit themselves to one and true God, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.